45. Uh, Genesis 45. So last week, actually two weeks ago, last week we had a, a special worship service that Andrew Sweat put on with the worship team. That was outstanding. Two weeks ago we talked about uh, the end of the Joseph story. We have gone through the book of Genesis, an incredible book, a unique book, um, a book mainly full of stories. And I like stories. A lot of us enjoy stories. We uh, relate to stories. And uh, one of the things uh, that's powerful about the book of Genesis is that we get to see a lot of different people, a lot of different uh, people and different sins and different struggles. We have Abraham, as we just read. Abraham is sent out and through his family, God's going to bless the entire world. Now, Abraham has a lot of sins, a lot of struggles, a lot of stubborn sins. He, he, he ends up having a couple sons. One is only a legitimate son, as it were, Isaac. Isaac then grows up and Isaac doesn't get a lot of time in Genesis. We don't get his story a ton, but we know that he has uh, two sons, namely Jacob and Esau, who from the beginning, from, from inside their mother's womb are at war, at odds with each other. They're fighting in their, um, in their womb. And I just was in Dallas with my family. And the second I see my brother, I like to you know, give him a hard time and he gives me a hard time. It's sort of like, since you're born, it's just kind of like, the, it's sort of like a brother thing. I don't know, but, but we definitely have the Jacob Esau thing going on a little bit. But, you know, so they're struggling and they fight and they, and they, 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 they are out at odds with each other. So Jacob grows up. Jacob actually is the one that will be blessed, not Esau, which is a big deal. Jacob's younger. Uh, Jacob then gets married uh, to a couple women. Not, no time for that story. If you want to listen to that one, go back in the podcast and check that one out. Basically, he has a bunch of sons, 10 of which are not from Rachel, um, but two are from Rachel. Rachel's the favorite wife. Um, and so one of those sons goes out one day, Joseph, with his brothers. He's sold into slavery uh, by the brothers because they're envious. They're jealous of him. They're jealous that their dad loves him more. Um, so they, they pretend oh, oh, that he's dead. They sell him into slavery, make some money. Judah has the idea, hey, he, we could kill him, but we wouldn't make any money off of it. And so let's make some money. You ever sin and, and you get to a place in sin where you kind of look around and go, how did I get here? It's, this is so bad. And I can't even recognize how bad it is because it's just too jarring. Well, that's kind of Judah, right? I mean, that's just a, let's not kill him. Let's make money off of him. And then let's lie to our dad about it. So Jacob, for the rest of, for the next 33 years, next 30 years, Jacob is, well, actually, I think it's 22. Jacob, for the next 22 years, is distraught. He's lost his favorite son. So he keeps Benjamin close. So anyway, there's a famine in the land. Sons go down to Egypt to get grain. They bump into this guy. They don't recognize him. The guy says, hey, we can give you grain, but first, you know, go get your, your youngest brother. Go get Benjamin. So anyway, long story short, they get Benjamin. They bring him down, and uh, they... J, uh, Joseph plants evidence on one of the, uh, the young men, so they're guilty. But Judah steps up. We talked last time about Judah being uh, prefiguring Christ because Judah steps up and says, take me. I will, I will be a slave in my brother's place because Joseph is like, no, just give me Benjamin. Joseph wants to find out something. Will you treat, jo- uh, will you treat Benjamin, Rachel's other son, will you treat Benjamin like you, like you treated me? Have you changed? Have you repented? Or are you still just going to kill us, you know, at the first sign of trouble here? Well, it seems like with Judah's stance that he has repented. Amen for repentance. Judah has repented, worldly sorrow. Here I am, ready to see justice done. If it means going to jail, I'll go to jail. I deserve it. We deserve it. And at this point is when Joseph breaks down crying. Chapter 45, verse 1. It reads, Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all of his attendants. And he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him 
and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Now, Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now, there have been famine in the land. And for the next five years, there will be no plowing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Skip on over to chapter 50, verse 20. So Joseph reveals himself. Then he says, please go get my dad. He's missed his dad. Jacob, old Jacob finds the strength to travel down to Egypt and he meets Joseph, his son. They reconcile. Jacob passes away. Jacob does something interesting. Isaac only, remember, who did he bless? He tries to bless one of them. In chapter 49, Jacob blesses all of his sons. Amen. I think he, he learned from that one. Uh, let's bless all the sons, not just one here, and have a, a bit of a problem on our hands with favoritism. He blesses all the kids. And then in Genesis 50, uh, verse 18, 18, actually, says, His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves. Now, just earlier, they were still guilty about what, what they had done. Actually, let's start in verse 17. Um, no, 15. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, what if Joseph holds a grudge against us and pays us back for all the wrongs we did to him? So they sent word to Joseph saying, your father left these instructions before he died. This is what you are to say to Joseph. I ask you to forgive your brothers the sins and the wrongs they committed in treating you so badly. Now, please forgive us the sins of the servant of the God of your father. When their message came to him, Joseph wept. His brothers then came and threw themselves down before him. We are your slaves, they said. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? You intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. And so an incredible climax, an incredible finish to the story of Genesis. Now, Joseph has every reason to be angry with his brothers, right? Sold into slavery. He, has no, he doesn't see them for 22 years. Talk about bitterness. You know, for a lot of us, bitterness can take a root in our hearts and ruin gratitude. We talked about that two weeks ago. Bitterness can ruin gratitude for a lot of us. So the brothers, it's incredible how they, they you know, Joseph says, it's me. I am your brother. And they're terrified, right? They're just like, it takes a second to realize, oh my goodness, this guy's our brother. So they realize that, okay, Joseph's here. Joseph says, don't be distressed. God, sent, God did this. God sent me ahead of you to save many lives. Now, years go by before they can kind of like get back to down, get back down to Egypt. And interesting that the brothers, how do they still feel? They still feel guilty. And they think once Jacob's gone, oh no, dad's gone. Now he's going he's gonna to kill us. Our brother's going to take revenge on us. Have we seen any, any inclination on Joseph's part to do anything vengeful? No. But it's amazing. Sin has consequences, right? And a lot of times we beat ourselves up more than people, other people are. And we, we, we have this like a worldly sorrow, if you will. We beat ourselves up. We're just, we're, God's going to kill me or people are going to be mad at me. People won't accept me. People, will never, people can never get past this. And these, these uh, molehills of sin become mountains, right? And Joseph says, guys, listen. He says it again. You intended to harm me. I get that. 
but God worked it out for good. So we're going to talk today a little bit, not about Judah, but about Joseph. How does Joseph get to this place where he can persevere under such intense trials? We all have trials. Everybody has trials. Everybody perseveres. And don't for a second think that uh, a change of scenery can get rid of trials. I think sometimes we think that if I just moved, if I just had a different situation, I could be better. It might last a few weeks, but I tell people mostly who want to move, I say, amen, if you're moving, but just remember, you're taking your heart with you. You're taking your heart with you. So some of this stuff isn't going to go away. And so we have these new situations where we think it'll be okay. And sometimes even we can struggle in our faith because we, 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 we face these trials and we can think, man, if I just wasn't maybe a Christian, maybe this church is too dedicated. They're too committed. They're too on top of it. Maybe if I just back off, I won't suffer as much. And the lie is, is that we all, everyone suffers. Yeah. Everyone suffers. It's just a matter of how you deal with that suffering. It's just a matter of now you can have different ways to kind of alleviate different things to make it more comfortable, but... The, quite, the reality is, is that everybody suffers. And everybody's preaching some kind of gospel, right? Somebody's like, you know what you got to do? If you really want to be happy in this life, you got to change your diet. You know what you got to do is you got to live over here. You know what you got to do? You know, it's just kind of, there's this funny show that kind of makes fun of um, uh, Portland. It's called Portlandia. And uh, in the show, they make fun of people in Portland. And I like it because it's kind of Charlottesville-y, uh, they're kind of similar. But one of the things is like people move to a city, then they, they go to the new restaurants, they go to all these new things, and they, they get a dog, and then they get bored after a year. And they say, you know, you know where you should move? Boulder. Oh, I'm going to Boulder. You know where you should move? Austin. And Austin is like the, the Austiniest of all the Austin, Portland, Boulder, Charlottesville. Right? It's kind of like this, this young person, like, I don't, hard to explain, right, the words. But you, some of you get it. But anyway, in the show, he moves, and then he moves six months, two months, one month, and they just keep moving to like freshen up their life. But the reality is like, it's not going to change anything. It's kind of making light of that fact. But the question for us this morning is, okay, if, pers- if, if suffering is a, a given, how do we deal with that suffering? How do, we, how do you deal with suffering? It's a good question to think about. How do you deal with it? When bad things happen, do you isolate yourself? Do you turn your phone off for a week? Do you binge watch a show? Do you binge drink? Do you turn to some kind of drug? Do you turn to girls? Do you turn to men? Do you, what is it? We all have some kind of coping mechanism to deal with pain. And then the the sad part is I think when, when we struggle, we think nobody will understand. So we isolate. And then when we get our lives together, we come back to church or come back to the body. But that's just perpetuating this fake churchness. I'm good now. Well, what about, like, we need each other at most in those times. Yeah. And I get it. Those are the most difficult times to be open. Yeah. They are. Because I'm, I'm a proud person. I don't want to let somebody in and see how bad it really is. I don't want to let somebody in and say, wow, Drew, that's, you do what? That you said what? You thought what? I fear that judgment. And I fear that. And that's a real thing. But I think we kind of get, get put in this place of thinking nobody will understand. We isolate and it doesn't, it doesn't help. It's simply just we wait until we're on this upswing of the cycle of pain when things are okay, but the shoe's going to drop eventually. The shoe will drop again. And so this is a really important uh, point for us this morning. This is the theme. It is the thesis. It is the climax. It is the point of the book of Genesis, the longest book in the Bible, the first book in the Bible for a reason. And I pray this morning we can actually take it to heart that God has prepared this for us today to walk away with what is he trying to teach you and I from this book? Because it is of extreme importance. Extreme importance. Your family, the, the safety, the, the spiritual uh, safety and the, 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 the providence, the salvation, 
joy in this life and the life to come hang on whether we can, for a moment, really have ears that hear and really listen to what God is trying to do. There's now, people, people, human suffering is not a new thing. Uh, I was, came upon recently a story of the Bataan Death March in World War II, which is an incredible story. But in World War II in the Philippines, there were about 60 to 80,000 Americans stationed there in the Philippines. And when uh, the, the war started, Japan had, had these Americans kind of cornered on the island. And the American general left for Australia, really left these guys just to basically surrender to the Japanese, as well as about 100,000 Filipinos. So you have 100,000, you have a lot of people, and they, had, they did this, this, they call it the death march, but they basically took these POWs, but the Japanese didn't view them as POWs, and they had a march all the way from this island, the south of this island, to the north of this island, right? And this is a picture of the Bataan death march, but they took these soldiers, and they quickly told guys, hey, get rid of your Japanese uh, trinkets, because if they found Japanese trinkets on you, they would uh, kill you immediately because it meant that you had taken it from a Japanese soldier. So they got rid of all these things. But some men were found with you know, Jap- some yen or some Jap- or Japanese uh, you know, drink or some kind or some food, and they would just be killed immediately. But the other men would have to walk in this sweltering heat, and they didn't have food or water, and, and, and basically the Japanese would try to basically, just torture. So they'd have them walk, and then during the hottest part of the day, sit down, they called it the sun treatment, sit down near water, uh, and then sit there for two hours, basically, while they baked in the sun. If they asked for water or made a move toward the water, they'd be shot. They'd put there, and then they, would be, they had to walk. And then if they fell behind or stumbled, they'd be shot. And these guys are walking, no food, no water. And I mean, the thirst is the biggest difficulty. I mean, they're just dying of thirst. And there were a couple of Filipinos who would try to throw food some, in, in the villages and things. But the Japanese d- despised the Filipinos more than the Americans. So they, anybody who threw food, anybody who reached for food would just be killed. And they would bring them down, and they and they'd pack them into these, uh, these locomotives, these train cars, these metal box cars, to ship them up on this rail line. And they were so packed in the darkness that they couldn't move. And it was, it was during the day. It was sweltering hot. And if men fainted, they couldn't fall. If you had to go to the bathroom, you just went where you were. Disease ran rampant, dysentery, malaria, you name it. There were men in those box cars who died, but you didn't know until you got off because they'd, just, they'd fall over. They got to O'Donnell, which is this prison camp. And it got even worse at O'Donnell. And you hear these stories, and you're thinking, how do these guys make it through this time? Every day they wake up, and they don't know if they're going to get food. The only food they got every day was a handful of sticky rice with maggots in it. And so that was the food they could choose to eat. And these guys, every day, many of the men lost 40 to 50 pounds. Because they were just so malnutritioned and malnourished. And so they're in this awful place. And they asked these men after the war. Some of them made it. And they asked them after the war, how did you do it? How did you make it through? A lot of them said, I thought of suicide every day. Or if you simply just stumble once, I know they'll shoot me or stab me or cut my head off, so let me just stumble and just give up. And they asked these guys, how did you do it? I mean, and that's the question, I think, for a lot of us. And this is a, a, a crazy situation, but it's, there's a lot of examples of human suffering in the world and in, in, in the history of the world, if you, especially if you study history. There's a lot of horrible things that people get through. The question is how? And a lot of these men had the same answer. I got to get home to my family. And it's interesting at first, and you go, the men will go through a little bit of suffering. It was, this is my duty for my country. Then you go through some more suffering, and then it's like, I got to see my family. I got to see my wife. I got to see my kids. And it's funny how when you get to that place, when, you're, when pressure is put on you, what your real motivation is shines through. And it's fun. some of us, like a little bit of pressure, and then we're, we're done. A little bit more pressure. Maybe we're hanging around. Maybe a lot of pressure. We kind of figure out, why are we doing this? 
Pressure is actually a really important thing. Refi- refining is an important process. A lot of us know this in life. You've got to be refined or else we'll just be, you know, kind of thrown to the lions in life, you know. And so these guys, they had these pictures of families. Families were going to get them through. And I tried to think about that. And I thought even I was reading about it and even reading about it. I was like, I got to go get some water. You know, I was like, I'm thirsty reading about it. And these guys go through this intense suffering. But they knew in order to get home, they had to take one more step. They had to wake up that morning and get through the day. Take one more step, do one more right thing. And they didn't know what was going on. They didn't know if the war was being won or lost. They had no communication. They didn't know if their, if their wife back home was seeing somebody else. They didn't know. They didn't know anything. They didn't know anything. But they trusted, we're going to let the big stuff happen, but we're going to do the right thing as best we can. And, and I think with Joseph, it's amazing in the same way how he, he's able to come to this place and forgive his brothers. It's an amazing story. It's an amazing story, right? I mean, I think if it was any of us, we'd have come up with, we've concocted a bunch of different ways to kind of put our siblings through the ringer. <laughs> and we do this with each other, right? It's like um, someone calls and we're like, huh, they called once, but will they call again? If they really care, they'll call again. Yeah. You called but didn't leave a voicemail? Hmm. You texted, but there were no emojis. <laughs> do you really love me? Do you really... Oh, you didn't call. I wasn't at church and nobody called. Do they really even care? And we kind of put each other through these little tests, right? Yeah. These little tests to kind of see, do you really love me? Imagine where Joseph is. Now, he does a little bit of that to kind of figure out, is my brother safe? Am I going to be safe? But still, even with that, he's able to not just say, I forgive you, like it's okay. But he has an incredible perspective, doesn't he? Did you notice what he says? He doesn't say, hey, I know what you did was awful. Uh, it was terrible. And I'm going to get over it. He doesn't say that. What does he say? He says, you didn't send me here. God sent me here. Wait, what? God sold you into slavery? That's an incredible perspective. My first point is faithful perspective. In order to get through tough times, in order to get through difficult times of struggle. And and this year, some of us have had tough years, difficult years, jobs that have pushed us to the limit, right? Situations in our own personal sin where we've kind of come to that moment of, how did I get here? This is, this is bad. We've had moments of deaths in the family. We've had moments of going through trauma, going, maybe even wrestling through just some, just some depression or some anxiety or some PTSD or some, some different things that have maybe really come kind of jumping into our lives and we're like, whoa, where, how do I deal with this? What's the next step here? And sometimes we think so much about the big picture We get lost kind of in just what's the next step to take. Just those simple steps to take. We get so overwhelmed with what's the big picture. You know, it's, I don't think for Joseph, when he gets to this place, right, I don't think he's necessarily always been there. How does Joseph get here? I don't think the day he was sold into slavery, he was like, this is all going to work out for good. (laughs) You know, like. I don't think he's thinking that right away. In fact, there's nothing in the, in the, in the Bible, in the story, to, in, to uh, hint at that. I don't think Jesus is, uh, Jesus, I don't think Joseph is being accused of, of adultery by Potiphar's wife and going, this is all going to be just fine. I think he's struggling. Yeah. I think he's struggling. And I think when he's put in prison and he tells the cupbearer, remember me when you come back to your place of high status with Pharaoh and years go by and he does not. I think Joseph is struggling. Years of struggling for Joseph. 
You know what it says about, uh, in those stories, if you notice, as we read through it as a church a few months ago, but it, say, it, it doesn't say Joseph still did the right thing or Joseph still made it. What was cool is it said, and God was with Joseph. Yeah. This awful thing happened and God was with him. And I think sometimes the perspective is not knowing, oh, I'm going to get something out of this. The perspective is knowing God is still with me. Yeah. And sometimes that's enough of a first step. God is with me. Doesn't mean God is going to advocate everything I do here, but God loves me and he's with me. And if you've made a decision to repent and be baptized, God's with you. And he wants you to be with him if you haven't made that decision yet. God is with you. And, and there's something about Joseph where I think he gets to a place where he's able. And I think one of the things we, have, we struggle with as, as humans is we want to know, don't we? We want to know why. We want to diagnose. It's not mostly your fault. It's mostly our country's fault in the West. The whole West, Europe and, and, and America, it's, all, it's, it's their fault. We'll blame them. But the way that we're raised, the way we're taught, we are the children of rationalism. We're the children of the scientific method. Poo-poo science. History and liter, liter, you know, liter, literature. Yeah. And liter, oh, what's it called? Human. No, what's it called? Help me out. The humanities. There's a L word. Can't remember. Liberal arts. Thank you, Robert. Liberal arts. Um, my brother got all of the math and science genes. I got the liberal arts genes, so uh, even though I can't remember what they're called. Um, but but we, have, we want to rationalize everything. We want to know why. Why? And we want to know why, so we Google. Hey, why did this happen? Oh, why did this happen? Oh, we just asked Google because we want to know why everything. And we are really frustrated. I actually remember a time. That's gonna, this is sad. I remember a time when we didn't know something my mom would be like, well, let's go to the library, look up the encyclopedia. Yeah. It's like, that sounds like forever ago, right? I just want to Google it and find out. But we want to know why. Why are we suffering? Yeah. And we go through the checklist. Is it because of something I did? Yeah. And some of us who are more guilty will go, yeah, it's my fault. I'm not likable. I'm a mess. Who could ever love me? Some of us who are like me and arrogant go, it would never be my fault. It's their fault. <laughs> they failed me. And so, we, but either way, I think we're kind of in, in, a, in a tough area. We're in, a, we're in a place where we're just going to end up at a dead end. Um, we try to find out who's, whose fault is it? Why am I here? Why am I going through what I'm going through? How could, who can I pin this on? And, you know, in, in these verses, it says, God, Joseph says, God sent me, or the Bible says, God sent me to preserve a great number of survivors. Later, he says, God meant it for good. God is doing these things. And when we're going through tough times, we've got to have a perspective We've got to trust. The key is that we have faith, that God is going to provide clarity at some point. It took Joseph 22 years to have clarity. And you may struggle, but I think there's something powerful in, I hate what I'm going through. It's hard for me to be open about what I'm going through. I'm embarrassed by what I'm going through. But I don't know what, God, I don't know what God's doing. But I, I'm, I'm going to trust that he's going to do something. I'm going to trust that he's going to bring about some kind of good through this. And I think that's a really big issue for a lot of us. And it's, it's, a, it's a theological, it's a deeply spiritual issue. That Do you really believe that God is with you? And maybe just for a second, think about that for a moment. Do you really believe it? And if you're saying no or I don't know, I think that's a problem. We've got to believe God wants to be with you. He deeply desires it. And he is a God who can rearrange the events of history in order to make that happen. 
People need a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, the, the guys uh, in, in the Bataan Death March, they needed, a, they needed a reason. People can only go through so much suffering for no reason. Everybody needs a light at the end of the tunnel. And that's, that's, that's common. We all have a reason. Like, I gotta, I gotta make it. My wife's at home. My kids are at home. I, my dad, my mom. I gotta get home to these relationships. I gotta make it through. No matter how hard it gets, I've got to finish. People are counting on me. People need me. We all have to have a light at the end of the tunnel. You know, but I think for a lot of us, we have to re-examine what that light is. Because if the light is, I'm going to finally get the marriage I want, then God is just a tool used by you to get the real light. I'm going to have God and I'm finally going to repent of this sin. Is, then God's just a tool. He's just an instrument. He's just something that you can use until you get what you really want. And the second that you deem him unworthy, you'll cast him aside and look to something else. We've got to make sure we're, we have the right finish line. Which way are you running? You know, we can't be a church that's unified if we're all running different directions. Where are you going? I don't know. I'm off this way. Right? We're just, and then we're like, just we come, but we got to, what's the real finish line? We got to have the right light at the end of the tunnel. You know, it's, it's amazing. But what happens if you can't see the light? What, if, what happens if you don't know what God's doing? What happens if you can't see it? And I think a lot of times we can't. And here it is. We have to be okay with something. It's going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. You're not going to like it. You're, the rationalism in you is going to. You don't have to know. You don't have to know. But yes, I do. No. Why? You want to know. Knowing gives you the power to be God. If I knew, then, I, then you wouldn't have to trust. And if you knew, you wouldn't need God. And I believe there are some things we just can't ever comprehend. There are some things we just don't get. You want to learn something, but we we can't know everything. Eve found that out a long time ago. You can't, and it's a kind of a mystery. And we're caught in this tension of these two things. Now, I struggle with this because sometimes I read, I think it's the I think it's the Church of Christ in me. But I read a story like this, and the, the theme of the story is basically that God will work through evil people's deeds. God will do good through the acts of evil people, which is a really encouraging thing. It's something that we have to know because a lot of times we look at the evil deeds of people and we go, where's God? Look at this principal. Look at this politician. Look at this wife. Look at this. They're so bad that I could never do good. So we we, we look around and we we look at other people's evil and we and we and then we use it as an excuse to do to not do good ourselves. Well, I can't do good if I share my faith and make a Bible study and set up a Bible study. No one's going to join in. No one's going to come. Everyone's busy. If I ask for help, no one's going to. I think that's real for us. So we have to. It's, and it's a mystery. So we got, it's like a mystery novel here. We're going to try to get in and try to figure out what the, who, the, who the killer is. What, how do we really deal with this mystery and the temptation? And so on one hand, we have God's absolute sovereignty. This idea that God is in control of everything. Now, the problem with that is. It means my deeds don't matter. Well, let me just do what I want and live for Drew because God's in control. And religious people can say that, right? I don't have to take any responsibility for my sin. You don't have to ever ask me about my sin. Don't even get in my business because God's in control. 
It's just a, a deflection to not take responsibility. But the other side is just as dangerous. It's that things happen outside of God's purview. Things happen and God either can't or won't help you. The danger with this, I think, especially with people who are self-reliant and successful, is we think, well, I just got to do it on my own. I just have to do it on my own. I just have to, my faith is up to me to get it done. And we, and we, we go past responsibility. Because healthy responsibility is important. We go past responsibility to guilt. It's all my fault. God could never love me. God could never forgive me. God could never save me. God, who, who would ever love me over here? This, if people really knew the real Drew, would they ever really love me? Or would they just cast me aside? Would they, would they still see me as a good church leader if they knew how disgusting I was? So let me just fake it. Let me, or, or let me just find people who are, I don't have to deal with it. And so on either side, we're in trouble. Yeah. And so we have to maintain the healthy tension in between of that God is sovereign, but God never ever says that sin doesn't have consequences. In fact, the entire Joseph story is filled with the consequences of the sin of the brothers. Right? For 22 years, it mentions Jacob's unquenchable, unquenchable grief. It mentions Joseph's unjust imprisonment. It mentions the brothers. They are racked with guilt for 20 years. And even when they're forgiven, they're still guilty. Their sin had consequences. All sin does. We've got to take responsibility for that sin. We've got to be ready to see justice done about that sin. We've got, we've got to own it, just like Judah does and says, our sin has been uncovered. Take me. We've got to have real repentance. But repentance goes to a place, and then we've got to be able to say, God is good. I did my best. Now God's going to do the rest. It's a tension between both. With, and the, the, the difficulty is without people, we slide to the left, slide to the right. It's like the cha-cha slide up in this piece. All right? We've got to stay in the middle. Cha-cha slide's a song in which you slide to the right at one point and then slide to the left at one point. And then you do a lot of other things as well in the song. Um, but we want to rationalize. We want to rationalize with this. Um, I'm going to bring her in for a landing here. When we go through suffering, we have all these different things that make us, I think, not take advantage of the opportunity to grow. And I think as a church, if, and I'm really inspired by the Jennings this morning, they were vulnerable. It's really hard to be vulnerable. And sometimes all you have to do, it's not like saying, you don't have to always figure out what God's doing, because sometimes you won't. And sometimes it may take years, and sometimes you may never know why God did what he did. But a faithful perspective can help you understand that God is going to do good, and I don't know what that good is yet. God's teaching me something. But we have to be able to take those moments and realize that just because people are doing evil things does not excuse us from doing the right thing. God brings salvation through human suffering. You know, there's a, a, a story in Luke right before Jesus dies. And Jesus says, the son of man, in Luke twenty two twenty two, the son of man will go as it has been decreed, but woe to that man who betrays him. If anybody understands the deeds of evil men and that God works through those evil deeds, 
It is Jesus. That Judas, one of his friends, would betray him, would sell him for 30 pieces of silver, just as Joseph was sold for 20 pieces of silver. But Jesus would be sold by a friend. That Jesus wouldn't try to change it. And Jesus would wrestle with that very thing in the garden. That Jesus would actually understand what it's like to not fully understand. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? On the cross, when he screams out, where are you, God? That Jesus did not know what it would be like to fully take on your sin and the sins of the world. That he staggered at that moment. That he stared into the depths of hell for you. That Jesus, who had been with God since the beginning, who had no idea what it was like to take on sin. He had never committed a sin, never even been around sin. He took on the sin of the world. If you and I sat here for just five minutes dwelling on our sin from the past year, I think some tears would be shed. I think people would walk out. I think some people would be highly uncomfortable with just your sin for just five minutes. Jesus takes on the sin of the world, the crushing guilt of the world, and he does not know what that will entail. But he gets to a place where he says, rise, let us go. Here comes my betrayer. He still does the right thing. Powerful about this passage is the next sentence. Because Jesus says, listen, Judas is going to do what he's going to do. And by the way, woe to that man. What does that mean? Consequences. Consequences. Judas is not off the hook because God is good. Judas has sinned. And by the way, sinned in an awful way. But God is going to bring about good through that evil. And I love this. Ready? It's coming up. You got to build tension. A couple seconds. And then you got to hit him with it. Bang. Nope. Okay, there you go. I love this. They began to question among themselves who might do this. What does that mean? They had no idea who the betrayer was. What does that mean? It means Jesus had treated them all the same. For the last three years, Jesus, the Son of God, knowing what evil would be done to him at such a personal, intimate level from a friend, someone who he'd chosen, they go, who? What if I said, somebody in this room will fall away this week? You'll go, I bet it's that guy, you know, like, or I bet it's her over there. She's always struggling. Uh, we could probably think of maybe people, and it wouldn't be good, but you could think of them. Imagine if we said, somebody's going to fall away, and you went, I wonder who it is. Everyone is so beloved. Everyone seems so accepted. Everyone is in, everyone's in here. Everyone's connected. Every, we're, all, we're all the apostles. We're all on the same page. That's to the level of love that Jesus had given his apostles. That is mind-blowing. Jesus had a faithful perspective. He said, I don't know how God's going to work through all this betrayal stuff. Seems like a real you know, ministry ender. Being killed and all. He knew what was going to happen, but he didn't know the full extent. He didn't really know what was going to happen. He had never experienced that sin, right? My last point is mission objectives. A faithful perspective leads to us obeying mission objectives. There's a... Uh, a great movie, one of my favorites. What about Bob, Bill Murray? It's a great movie. And in the movie, uh, I like it because it's got some counseling stuff, so I can relate to a little bit of that. But uh, the, uh, the, the doctor there, the therapist, writes a book called Baby Steps. And Bob, he takes it literally, so he's taking baby steps. Baby steps out the door, baby, baby steps. So he's, he's like, no, it's not literal baby steps. It's just like small steps in your life. But he takes the little baby steps. And I love that idea, but I think those men on the Bataan Peninsula, they couldn't think about the war. They couldn't think about what was going on around the world. 
about Hitler, about Europe, about the Pacific Theater. All they had to do was think about getting up that morning, doing their best to survive, and doing their best to take care of the guys around them. That's all they could handle, and that was enough. And I think when we have a faithful perspective, we're able to do the small right things. Do the right thing. You don't have to always know. But having a deep conviction that God will work this out for good, I don't know how. And I look forward to learning how. But I'm still going to do the right thing. You know, knowing that God is sovereign allows us to really pray with all our heart. Because we know that God can change anything. God can do whatever he pleases. We, when we pray to God, uh, we know that God is sovereign. It allows us to pray deeper. But when we take responsibility, we're, we're not, uh, we don't get anything twisted, if you know what I mean. We don't, uh, we don't deflect responsibility. So being able to know that God is sovereign, God knows everything, and that God loves me despite my sin actually allows you to have a greater faith than you could ever imagine. Because the deeper you know your own sin, and the deeper you come to terms with your sin, the more you can say, God loves me, and he knows that? Oh, my goodness. But when we pretend, when we don't deal with it, when we cast it aside, we're not able to have a great faith because God just forgave us a couple dollars after all. But when we see God's forgiven me $10 million and it's growing all the time because I'm seeing my sin all the time. But we've also got to take uh, responsibility. We also have to realize that responsibility can go too far. When we beat ourselves up and go, what can God, go, what can God do through Blue Ridge? It's just me. It's just us. It's just us, just a motley crew of, you know, a ragtag team of kind of like, I don't know, doing our best disciples. What can God do? I'm so busy. What can God do? I'm not that smart. What can God do? I can't lead a Bible study. What can God do? I'm not that good of a wife. What can God do? I'm not that good of a husband. What can God do? And we get limited because we're so self-reliant and self-focused. We don't have a real faith in a real sovereign God. But when you say, no, God can do anything through my little offering. God loves the little things. God chooses the little things in the Bible. It was a little country that Gideon led. In fact, it was too big. 3,000 was too big. He had to decrease it to 300. And God worked through the little thing of Gideon's army to be able to win the battle against the enemy. It was a little thing when little Ruth, a Moabitess, who's in a famine in the land, goes to Boaz and says, can I work in your field? Boaz says, well, sure. She realizes this is, a, this is a family member. He can save my family. He can bring me into the family of God. And it was through that little thing that the lineage of Christ is, is restored and, and, and maintained. That King David would be the great-grandson of that family. It was the little thing. And as Daniel goes into the, the, this Babylon, Daniel goes into Babylon surrounded and taken into captivity. He's a Jew, and they won't let him pray. He still prays. And he's got three boys, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And they're told that they're going to be burned in the fire if they don't bow down to the idols. It was a little thing when they said, we're not going to bow down. And by the way, I love, we're not going to bow down because we know God will save us. And if he doesn't, even if he doesn't, we ain't, we ain't going to bow down to nobody. Talk about not knowing what's going to happen, right? God can help me in my life with my marriage. And even if he doesn't, I still love God. I mean, what are you going to do? God can help my kids. But even if, he, even if they don't change, I'm not going anywhere. That's a faith, but it's a little thing that, that, that caused the king, Nebuchadnezzar, the king of the world, to bow down to Yahweh, to bow down to God. It was a little thing when a little widow with two pennies gave it in the contribution plate 
And God worked through that little thing and the cameras of heaven zoomed in on her and said, that is generosity. It was a little thing. It was a little thing when Andrew said, hey, brother Peter, I, I just met this guy, Jesus. You want to come check him out? And Peter says, well, sure, I'll go check him out. It was a little thing for Andrew to bring his brother to church. Then Peter becomes the rock and the, the, the man that would have the, the keys to the kingdom of heaven. These are little things that God works through. If we can be faithful with just the nugget that God's given you, a faithful perspective can allow you to, to have a missional objective. And it's a little thing. But are you faithful with that little thing? You might only have one thing that you're doing for God that's like, you know what? The only thing I have is my kids on, in the car on the way to school. That's the only time I really have with them. What are you doing with that gift? What are you doing? Have you made it awesome? Have you made it exciting? Have you figured out what will encourage them? Maybe all you have to share your faith. You, maybe you can't share your faith at work. But maybe all you have to share your faith is at your kid's soccer practice. That's all you have. It's a nugget. Take the nugget. You see the same guy every time. It's a little thing to just, how's your day going? How are you doing? Talk about your life. I think if we all realize that God is going to work through us, even though we have evil in our lives and even though we live in an evil world, we'll be able to see what God can do in this city. And the best part is, when he does it, none of us can take credit. Oh, wouldn't that be beautiful? Just say, I don't know what happened. I invited this guy from soccer practice and God had just prepared his heart. I didn't know how to lead Bible studies. He just, it was like Pierre Smith, man. The guy just came to church and said, here's my sin. Put me in the water. And we did. And man, he's great. He's going off to war now. He's going off, not war, going off to the armed services. That'd be worse. Spiritual, spiritual war, spiritual battlefield. But he would be like a Josh Riggs. I didn't know what happened with Josh and Yolanda Riggs. He just showed up. Hey, what are we doing? What's going on? Can you teach me about the Bible? I mean, I went to church. I mean, these people who come along, I mean, in our lives and these friendships that are built and people that move in who change. You know, remember when Zali and Salisa White moved in and we're like, who are these people? They're from somewhere, Alabama. And they have changed the church because of their giving and their servant hearts. I mean, there's God works through these little things. And if we have a light at the end of the tunnel and if that light is I get to be with Jesus, I get to suffer like Jesus did. I get to know Jesus and everything else on the way is a gift. Let's close out with John 9, verse 1. Last thing. John 9, 1. And I just want to say that I'm grateful for everybody in this room. Um, you guys have gone through traumatic events this year. You've had friend, friends betray you. You've had friends in the church uh, reject you. You've had people in your life pass away, family members. Um, you've had difficult, difficult times. I mean, you find about people in your family that are going through Diseases are going through hard mental, uh, spiritual, and even emotional trauma. Um, a lot of us have gone through personal, even uh, racial prejudice in the city. We've been fired. Uh, we've been uh, had trouble in our marriages. We've had difficulty with our own sin, other stubborn addictions that just keep pounding us away, and our own guilt is killing us. And I just want to encourage you that you're here, Amen. and that's a step. And I want to encourage us, just like those men did, you know, 70 years ago. To just do the right thing every day. When you have a faithful perspective, you can wake up tomorrow and do the right thing. If it's the right thing to share your faith with your neighbor, then do it. If it's the right thing to talk to your kid about this stubborn sin in their life, then do it. If it's the right thing to confess because you've hurt some people and ask for forgiveness, then do it. I don't know how God's going, but what about this? What about that? We can't understand the mystery. We can love the mystery 
and live in the tension of it. And this is exactly what Jesus does in John chapter 9. Oh, yeah. Hold on. John 9. Verse 1. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the works of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. When I am in the world, I am the light of the world. You know, this man was born blind, someone who was in need of help. And the religious people were tempted to have a theological discussion about where it came from. Let's have a seat. Was he born blind or was it his parents' fault? Did they sin? Did he sin? Whose fault is it? Let's, talk, let's have tea and talk about this theological discussion. And Jesus says, I don't have a lot of time. A darkness is coming. So but instead of talking about it, I'm going to actually help him. We've got to do the work of him who sent us. And when it's tempting for us to kind of wallow in why, 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 I pray that it's either us or if we're not strong enough that we have spiritual friendships in the church who can say, brother, you don't need to know why. Sister, I'll pray for you. And that is difficult. But what's one thing you can do tomorrow to, to show God that you're grateful for him? If we're going to be dutiful about anything, let's be dutiful about how grateful we are for God. We can get up tomorrow and not let the fact that we're a single mom cause us to not share our faith. We can not, not the fact, I'm a new disciple, so I can't lead anything. It would, no, be, be grateful. Just take, it, take that step out. But I can't do anything. I'm not as good. I'm not as blah, 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 blah. You know, I'm encouraged by the Richmonds. You know, Aaron this morning or last couple times ago, Aaron was like, can I help with sound? It just seems like you're running around over here. And I was like, very astute of you. Yes, I am running around over here. And yes, you're hired. Help with sound. Here he is sitting down. He's been hired for sound. I don't know if you knew that. But anyway, we'll talk about it later. But, but like, we don't just, but he could have said, well, I'm new here. I just moved here. I don't know. I mean, I just, but how can I help? And it's those nuggets that lift this church up and help us not just be some church in Charlottesville, but God's elect in a place that is full of evil, in a place that needs nuggets of faith. For that we can have a light at the end of the tunnel, but we can actually be able to be here a year from now and look around and say, look what God did. Amen. Look at the miracles he did. And we're grateful that we're a part of that miracle. And just as God says at the end of Genesis, I pray we can remember that verse. If you remember anything in Genesis, remember that you intended it for evil, but God worked it out for good. We're going to say a prayer and have one final song. So if you can, let's bow our heads and we will pray. Thanks for listening to the Blue Ridge Podcast. My name is Seth Mitchell, and if you'd be interested in more resources like this or connecting with us, you can go to blueridge.church or join us at Burnley Moran Elementary School at 7 p.m. Wednesdays or 10.30 a.m. Sundays in Charlottesville, Virginia. Thanks for tuning in and see you next time.